News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. <laughs> FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here in Brooklyn with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello. And Alex Brooklyn in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. We'll be joined in a bit by longtime New York journalist Todd Mizell. And as we told you about last week, I wanted to flag once again, we're going to be starting this People's Podcast, The People's Podcast. And we need your input to make this happen. It's one simple question. What New York City story do you want covered? And we're going to take those answers and get some of those stories covered. If you want to suggest something that we should be on, please call 917-475-6010 and leave a message after the tone. Old school. Or get all high-tech 2.0-ish and email us at peoplespod at faq.nyc. So, with all that said, let's get right to it. So on the good news, bad news front, the numbers are still going in the wrong direction. Cuomo is uh, acknowledging that, that more shutdowns may be happening shortly and whatever dizzying series of red and orange zones and thresholds and protocols would trigger that. And he's saying 170,000 doses of the vaccine coming this weekend to New York. So maybe this is the beginning of the end. We're going to see. In the meantime, here in New York City, it appears that uh, everybody and their cousins and their cousins' cousins and uh, Sean Donovan and Ray McGuire and maybe Christine Quinn and maybe Max Rose and Lord knows who I'm forgetting there, uh, they're all going to be running for mayor in what seems like a really dizzying, insanely crowded field that Democratic primary voters are going to probably decide the next mayor and they're going to probably be using ranked choice voting, but maybe not as uh, we now have a bunch of Pauls suing to stop that at the last minute. Uh, Eric Adams, uh, president of Brooklyn, complaining about it. And I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, what all this means and where it's going. Is this like the next decade of the city getting decided? And I can't even figure out what the conversation is about. Uh, Professor Greer, can you make any sense of this for us, please? No, I wish I could, Harry. Everyone and their grandmother is running. I, when you said Christine Quinn, I was like, I hope you're not about to say Christina Greer because I'm like the one New Yorker who's not running. Draft Professor Greer. There's a lot of quantity out there. There's a lot of quantity. And I'm I'm searching for a little bit more quality, to be quite honest. Um, there's that. I'm curious as to how the governor is going to decide who gets the vaccine and when. Um, you know, I saw that the 90-something-year-old woman got the first vaccine. I was like, oh, okay. That seems like the most effective use of a vaccine to give it to a 92-year-old, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> you mean in I mean, England, I'm, right? I'm not trying to be ageist. What'd you say? In England, right? The 90-year-old. The 90 yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, of course. 92-year-olds seem like a priority, not other folks. I mean, whatever. So I guess we'll figure that out. I don't know who's in charge of figuring that out, but to me, it's fascinating. Because um, that's a hard call, right? I mean, I tend to lean on, like, I think, you know, incarcerated people should be among the first to get it. But lots of folks think celebrities and athletes should get it so that they can make the pitch. Other folks realize that, you know, there are a lot of Black folks who still remember that the U.S. government has consistently tried to kill us. So 
Tuskegee syphilis experiment on down. So there's going to, there needs to be a lot of awareness campaigns that need to happen to convince particular marginalized groups that this is actually a good thing. Uh, And it's an unknown thing, but it's actually uh, something that's helpful and not going along with American history of deliberately trying to kill black people, which we have the receipts for, which brings us to another educational, I think, uh, aspect that needs to happen in the city, which is ranked choice voting, where I don't think that ranked choice voting is a horrible enterprise or inherently racist. But for any group of people, I think that some education needs to happen. We can't have something brand new to our electoral system and then just assume that everyone's going to get on board when they're stressed out, trying to vote quickly. Everything is always in like seven point font. So even if we have instructions, it's like there needs to be, I think, a lot more of a public awareness campaign for everyone because you can take, you know, one of the most faithful voters and throw them in there and say like, okay, now we're doing a totally different system and they're supposed to figure this out really quickly before they go to work, while they're in line to vote, and trying to make this happen. So we're just, to be New York, we seem so bootleg. <laughs> like, I would think that, you know, we'd have just more of our ish together, like, when it comes to representation, when it comes to organization, when it comes to communication. We just seem to be all over the place. Like, we're not, you know, Oopalacha. We're New York City. Like, this just doesn't make any sense to me. So... One other concern, of course, is uh, how well the Board of Elections is going to be able to administer this ranked choice vote, assuming right, we have they're it. known to be like a super stellar tight ship, right, <laughs> in all things elections. And I'm saying this in the most facetious manner that I can muster. Oh, God. W- one other group, obviously, uh, for, for the vaccine and, and, and the list there, where I think there's a lot less hesitancy – Altogether, our uh, EMTs and uh, other first responders, doctors, and so on. I know there was a survey that showed a really high percentage of firefighters, strikingly enough, was not inclined to uh, to take the vaccine or certainly to you know want to be at the uh, front of the line for that, which seemed like a a bit of a disturbing development for me. My big thought with the mayoral field, which is just hold on, me really now, quickly though, before you move on to the mayoral field, is it. Is there a correlation between the firefighters in Staten Island and the shenanigans we're seeing with people being in the streets and refusing to listen to the governor and, like, white men plowing down police officers and not having a scratch on them? Like, is there some sort of correlation there? It's a very good question, and one would assume that there's at least some correlation there. But I haven't dug in to be able to answer that with certainty. Uh, That is my operating assumption. I mean, because that, to me, those visuals— of what's going on in Staten Island is like the textbook definition of white privilege. <laughs> like you can get rearrested and rearrested. Your business, you know, is is not following any of the rules. And then the manager of your business gets so upset, he runs from the cops, no scratch on him, gets in his car, no scratch on him, runs down a police officer, no scratch on him, and then peacefully gets arrested. I was like, well, aren't you just lucky to live in Staten Island and be white? Because that, to me, is totally bonkers. No bail application, by the way. So so he, it's a sheriff who's actually on the... Uh, the uh, the A sheriff! You hit a sheriff with your car, and you don't have a scratch on you. Okay. Just sit with that for a second. As 300 people, maskless, demand to drink beer in the middle of the night. So what I want from the Democratic candidates, and we're going to have a bunch of them on in coming weeks, 
And it's weird because of rank choice and largely just because this field is so crowded and the primary is likely to be the whole thing. I think nobody really wants to stick their head up or distinguish themselves all that much in these ways, in the way you would have to say in a general, a competitive general election. I want to know what people are planning to do about groups that just don't care about any of this health guidance. And I know all the candidates are thinking maybe there's a vaccine and this won't be our problem. So we could be talking about uh, uh, religious Jews in Brooklyn. We could be talking about Staten Island. Um, but there, there are lots of people, and this was a big concern. Back in the spring. Or the, the rich anti-vaxxers on the east side. For sure. For sure. Like uh, what what can or should government be doing about these groups? And does this involve the police? Does this involve shuttering businesses and schools? Like how does this actually work? And right now I think everyone running is comfortable letting de Blasio plot through this and saying yeah. as little as possible that might alienate uh, groups of voters. But it, it's discouraging to me in terms of how serious this field is or is not. Yeah. And we, I mean, I think, you know, you know this better than I, but like there's so many talented journalists in a lot of different outlets throughout the city. And it's like, we just need to band together and become like a super force of like not letting any of these candidates escape with these surface answers. Right. So, you know, as we've talked about before, it's like, I don't care that you say that you're going to fire Shay. Of course, that's like the lowest hanging fruit. That's the least common denominator. I, that's a non-starter. Fine. Everybody's going to fire Shay. Whoop-de-whoop. Who are you going to hire? Because you can't say, well, I don't know. I need to have a rough idea of some people who were in your head. Because after you win the primary, you only have about, what, six months before you're sworn in. So, like, you need to hit the ground running. If you have zero idea as to who you want to be as your transportation commissioner or your health commissioner or your police commissioner, all the issues that we're struggling with in the city, then you're not ready for the job. You got to give me some names because as I've said before, if de Blasio had said, I'm going to hire Bill Bratton, he would not have gotten my vote. If I knew that Bill Bratton was in his top three, he wouldn't have gotten my vote. So I want to know what kind of people you, you plan to surround yourself with. And you can't say like, oh, well, that's, that's too soon and it's too early for me to say. No, it's not. It's absolutely not too early for us to say. You know, so it's like if we want to talk about the foster care system or being from the foster care system, what are your plans for the foster care system? What are your plans for not just the Lucerne Hotel, but homelessness? Like, how do you plan on working with the governor since it doesn't seem like he's going to go to D.C.? Like these surface conversations of painting by numbers as to identifying what the problem is in New York. It's like we've been there. We've done it. We've done that. We know that we're broke. We know small businesses are closing. We know big businesses are closing. We know that we've got empty storefronts. You know, crime is rising. Yada, yada, yada. Stop. I think the candidates are stuck in this identification sort of diagnostic phase. And it's like, yeah, we've all diagnosed the problem. So if you want to be the doctor, what's the solution? So one one other thing we know is that uh, Cuomo and the state are going to be closing in on the next mayor, that there's not going to be enough money to go around, that he's going to take the funding streams he provides to CUNY to the MTA and elsewhere and try to tighten his control over New York, that the financial control board might come back into play that was started during our near bankruptcy experience in the 70s. And I understand that's very complicated for candidates to talk about uh, and prior to coming to office, but I, you know, I really want to know with each of them, and I've been asking when I can, you know, what, what is your plan there? Uh, and anyone who doesn't have an answer to that, that's a, that's a real 
red flag for me. Yeah, well, I mean, I think all candidates should know, though, also, when they come on this podcast, if they want to come on the podcast, that we are a fair podcast, but it's not a walk-in-the-park podcast either. So you're not going to come on here and spout your talking points and your campaign slogans and expect us to smile and be bedazzled by someone who's filed some paperwork that they're running for the mayor of New York City. So either you answer the questions or you can stay home and do other podcasts. But I think that that also needs to be abundantly clear. Like, I don't have an agenda. I don't have a candidate. I'm not working for anyone. I work for Fordham University and (laughs) myself. So for people who say they want to run for mayor, they also need to be prepared to ask questions that aren't, aren't you so great? We're so thankful that you're running for mayor. That's not what this is about. That's not what this... Your campaign should be about. That's not what this podcast is about. And I surely hope that journalists across the city make it abundantly clear that, like, don't be charmed by someone who's filed paperwork to say they're running for mayor. Ask them the questions that are going to get this city out of a ditch. That, boys and girls, is what we call a subtweet. I've got a big no prize coming, Marvel style, (laughs) to the first person who correctly identifies who has been subtweeted, uh, there will be no public or private verification. And returning for just one second to the subject of talented journalists, we were joined this week by uh, Todd Mizell, a longtime of the Daily News, most lately of AM New York. Alex, do you want to just fill our listeners in on Todd before we get to that interview? Yeah, uh, Todd Maisel has been a, uh, he was first a photographer, then he became a multimedia journalist where he did both the story and the pictures. He's been around working in New York local news as part of the New York Press Corps since the 80s. He is a fierce, fierce advocate for more transparency when it comes to the NYPD and access for the press. And uh, I was really, really happy to meet him last year. He just retired. After 38 years. Yeah, just retired after 38 years. And he's agreed to join us to regale us with uh, tales of a New York City journalist. Um, Here he is. Okay, Todd. Thank you for coming on FAQ. I'm really excited to talk to you. You had big news in the past week of your retirement, and you are a staple multimedia journalist of New York City. Welcome. Yeah. It's great to be here. Thank you. We are currently talking to Todd from his car, where he spent most of his career riding around New York City. However, today, he's in Massachusetts. Um, Todd, can you... Talk to us a little bit. I know you have this like long, illustrious, involved career with you know local news in New York City. Can you talk to us a little bit about the '90s and what it was like when you got started? Oh, when I got started, mm. yeah, I, I remember the first time that I ever did anything for the Daily News. I was I was still at NYU, a student there, um, and uh, there was a, a blackout. In New York City, the uh, transformer blew at the uh, 14th Street uh, generating site. And, and I w- ran over there on foot, ran from Broadway all the way to 14th Street and D. Uh, I was, I could run anywhere at that time, you know. You had the energy. Um, and I didn't have a press card. And so I couldn't go where the rest of the press was, which is fine because uh, I didn't want what they wanted anyways. So what do I do? I go around the block, I 
get into the parking lot. I climbed the uh, the coal tower conveyor belt, got into the plant, put on a con helmet, and walked around like I owned the place. Took pictures, came down, all the pressures like looking at me and said, what the hell? How did he get in there? What, what's he doing in there? So I meet a guy from the Daily News, which is where I worked 18 years. But I meet him for the first time, and he says, oh, we'll take your film uh, and uh, take my film to the Daily News. Of course, it's 14th Street, and their place is on 42nd and 2nd. So what do I do? I run from 14th Street and Avenue D all the way to 42nd Street and 2nd Avenue. Just run. Uh, I arrived there. It's a really hot day, and I'm sweating, and and the editor, I get up there, and he says, Ah, take it in the back, take it in the back. Now, all right, take it in the back. They soup it up. They love the pictures. They love everything. They didn't use anything. Paid me $5. Oh, man. <laughs> what year is this? This was 1981. So, I... Subsequently, worked for the Daily News as a freelancer. I received a number of uh, big checks, like $10, $15, uh, kill fees, they would call them. For you to shoot, and then they don't use anything. You'd kill yourself for that. And and they'd give you a roll of film. They'd do you a favor. Yeah. Uh, The business changed a lot. Yeah, definitely has changed a lot. Nobody gets away with paying $5 anymore. Now they pay 15 and 20 <laughs> Hey, Todd, we've had previous guests on who are photographers, and they talked about having like a 24-hour dark room. Where did you develop your film when well, you got your free when, when When the 80s hit, uh, when I first started, I started with Curry of Life, which is a funny thing because Curry of Life is now Schnepp's Media, which is where I just ended my career. So I, I have come full circle. It's very funny because the publisher of Schneps was the son of the publisher of Career Life. And I knew him from there. So we knew each other. When when I walked in, I said, Chris, what are you doing here? <laughs> so it, it came full circle. Um, where was I? Uh, uh, where you developed your film? My film. I was the biggest black and white lab in probably all Brooklyn at the time. And so I would develop all the pictures for all the reporters, all the photographers, all the local newspapers. Um, I had a, I had a lab in my attic in my house. And uh, I used to have a couple of lab people. And we'd be developing film for 10 hours a day. So I had, I had a full dark room. In fact, I still have the enlarge, one of the enlargers. I got rid of everything else except for one of them. And we developed film there. And, and right through into the 90s, uh, I was developing film. And then would photographers come and pick that up? Or, or were you delivering it to the papers? Like, like, how was this actually working? Where was the house? I would deliver it to the, to the newspapers. Uh, they, they were pretty local because they were all Brooklyn. So I would just drop the, the pictures off and, uh, and, and then they'd get what they need there. That that lasted a couple of years, uh, and, and then I was doing my own work for a while. But then, you know, color became uh, more acceptable to most of the publications as we got into the 90s, and uh, I stopped doing black and white because it kind of, you know, you can always make a black and white picture out of a color negative. So uh, it made sense to, to kind of calm down with the black and white and, 
I think the last time I used uh, the lab was probably 2000. And after that, I stopped completely doing film because uh, the Daily News at that time gave me digital cameras. Oh, right. You, uh, the, the big move to, from film to digital was around 2000. I was, uh, right. I was 18. I was at film school and everyone was moving from learning how to do 16 millimeter to the PD-150, which was the first like prosumer video camera. Right. 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 And, uh, I, when, when I got my job, I got the job in 99 with the Daily News and I was one of the first people to get the new line of Nikon D1s. Before that, only the sports guys were using, uh, uh, a hybrid Kodak Nikon camera uh, that took low resolution pictures and they were terribly expensive. I, I think uh, they were like ten, fifteen thousand dollars a piece for the body. Uh, very expensive cameras and and very cumbersome at that uh, when they started out to, uh, to send images. Very cumbersome. So Todd, you're running all around Brooklyn all around the city at this point. I'm just curious, amidst all of this shootings talk and bad old days talk happening now, just what that was like for you in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. You know, they talk about, yeah, just, just we had the summer of violence this year. Uh, and uh, that, that really was an eye-opener because I hadn't seen that since the 90s. The bad old days were certainly the 80s and 90s when they, when you'd arrive at a job and you'd be hearing shots fired and, and we'd all be ducking down behind our cars and, uh, and one time, uh, a bullet hit my car. I mean, uh, it, it was just crazy back then. Uh, you, you'd walk up on jobs and it'd be, uh, it'd be four or five shootings in a night, uh, and I'd be at every one of them and they'd all be in Brooklyn. You'd be doing 10 jobs in a day because it was just from one to the next. And I was able to do that at the time because I was just doing photography for a while. AM New York, it was different because I had to do the story too. So three or four stories in a day, that was a lot. It's a lot. But yeah, things have changed quite a bit since the 80s, 90s. I mean, in the 80s, we had the crack years. And those people, you, you couldn't reason with them. You couldn't reason with them, and they were the the crack made them violent and uncontrollably so. Um, so there there was nothing you could do with those people, and, and it was just awful. In what capacity were you interacting with them? Mostly as a photographer back then. Uh, I became uh, the managing editor at Town and Village, a weekly newspaper in Manhattan. Uh, I did that for seven years, actually. But I was still chasing. Oh yeah, I was still out there chasing. I, I I would be out there with a lot of different things. In fact, it was funny because while I was at Town and Village, uh, I I was chasing. And uh, I just did a story the other day for AM about a car going into Washington Square Park and, and crashing into a police car. And I immediately remembered it back in 93 when a, a car went into Washington Square Park, killed four people and hit 12. I remember that. And so I dug up the front page of that uh, paper, and I ran it with the story. Yeah, I remember that was a big deal. You've been super vocal about uh, the NYPD and how it is to interact with them around getting press cards, getting credentialed. What was it like, you know, if you could talk to us a little bit about what it was like back then. Like, how were you credentialed back in the day? Okay. 
it, it took me a long time to get a press card. Uh, back in the 80s, um, they were not easy to get. And, and it's funny, because here I am, I'm not working, but out of force of habit, I put my press card on. <laughs> it sits right next to me in the car. So I, I just got in the car this morning, I put my press card on like I always do, and here it is. And, and why am I wearing it? I, I, I said to myself, what the hell am I doing? I'm wearing a press card. What, what do I need a press card for today? <laughs> but, okay, so back in, in the 90, in the 80s when I first got my press card, uh, in fact, I was looking at the first letter that I received that I got from the Daily News photo editor. I still have it, the 1986. That's when I got my first press card. Um, the first year and a half was murder because the, the, the NYPD wouldn't give me a press card. They were telling me I needed six letters. Six letters is crazy. Can we pause there for just one second, right? Yeah. So, so this has changed a little bit over time. Oh, yeah. But nominally, the, the, the press card is so you can cross police lines and stuff like that. And to get it, you need to show that you've covered stories where you already needed to cross police lines. So, so that gets a little chicken and eggy and, and come with like an absurd amount of letters from people you work with, right? Yeah, at that Indicating time. Indicating oh, why yeah. you did this. Yeah. And then I know sometimes these cards are very useful just when you're on a scene and you're trying to deal with police officers, whomever. And that at other times, like like during Occupy, for instance, that you can actually get targeted or sort of shunted aside or penned in because you have one of those cards. And I'm, I'm I, just curious if you can talk about how this actually works and how it's changed over the years. I never let myself get penned in, okay? And, and I would I would push back. And my strategy was always a little different than a lot of people. I, I had a lot of friends in the police department over the years, and I would make sure that when I show up at these jobs, I go over to the commander, I introduce myself, or I already know him, I shake his hand, I make sure all the cops around see that I did that. They don't bother me. Uh, I still, I still, up until I left uh, AM, I was still doing that. I would make sure that the cops knew who I was, and that I'm not a threat to them. In fact, I, I would try to emphasize to the police officers that we are not your enemy. We're, we're just we're, we're not one of those guys with a cell phone who is going to interpret what the news is. We just present it as it is. It, it's what it is. It's not anything else. Um, and uh, yeah, you get pushed around sometimes, but that's part of the job. I, I, I got pushed around on both sides. Uh, during Occupy, during uh, during the Floyd protests, yeah, I, I I had trouble with cops. Sure, I had trouble with protesters a little bit more uh, this time, and uh, and, and it, it, it was um, it, it was kind of depressing uh, for for uh, people who are out there protesting and then tell me that I don't have a right to take their picture, and I'd say. Who the hell do you think you are? You're in a public place. You have no expectation of privacy. Think about that. Yeah, that's a, it's a big issue right now, not just the taking of pictures, but now a lot of protesters, and we've seen this over the past several months, um, especially the uh, last month in front of Stonewall, where there was kind of an excessive amount of police present. Um, we saw a lot of protesters kind of demanding the that certain press, you know, sort of almost register with them. And if they didn't follow the protesters' rules, the protesters didn't describe how they would, but that they would try to bar them from 
from the demonstration in some way. So I know that there's been a lot of tension, especially this year, between press and protesters. And it used to be between press and police. Um, Oddly enough, it's a weird place where police and protesters, uh, you know, are weirdly trying to use the same rhetoric and curtail uh, a lot of press people. It's a strange, a strange marriage. Yeah, you know, I, I would say to them, who the hell's going to recognize you? You're wearing a mask. I mean, come on. All I'm seeing is your eyes. Yeah, most of them are wearing full masks. I said, who's going to know you? I, and, and you know what? Somebody came over to me and said, please don't take my picture. I would say, all right. But the people who got nasty with me, that's you. That's you. That's it. I don't care. And a lot of the times I would make sure I was with other photographers. And if they're going to gang up on me, they're going to get the same. And uh, certainly the people at City Hall, occupying uh, the City Hall Park, some of them were very nasty. Not only nasty, but uh, I almost got robbed there. I, I, I couldn't believe some of the things that were going on. And I went back there one day, and I had a couple of friends of my own. And uh, I got in their face, and I said, you want to go at it? We're going to go at it. Well, maybe you want to call your friends across the street in blue. You can call them if you've been beaten down. They left me alone. (laughs) So last year, you and I talked a lot about encrypted radios and press passes and the NYPD control. Can you just sort of walk us through what's happening right now with how the New York Police Department kind of controls the New York press corps with these press cards and with their radios? Could you walk us through that issue? Okay. Uh, I have three radios in my car. They're built into the dash. Uh, They uh, listen to everything from precincts to special ops fire, EMS. Uh, I have a radio that picks up uh, MTA transmissions. Uh, So I'm able to hear what they're saying. Everybody talks in their own code. EMS, fire, police, they have their own codes, their own 10 codes. So uh, if there's a 1013 uh, with a police officer, it's a police officer in trouble. Uh, What happens now is that the radios are just one of the ways that I find news. Radios, Twitter feeds, BNN, which is a a breaking news network that also monitors all the radios and transmits to me all the big breaking news. And and then as citizen. And and so there's a a bunch of ways that that people are, that I'm able to know what's going on. Radios are the most immediate. They give me the information, the fastest, and, and then I know what I'm going into. Uh, I, I, I've been, I've gone into terrorist incidents. I want to know what's going on before I get there. I don't want to be walking into poison gas. I got to tell you that. Uh, that's one of the things that became very apparent to me after 9-11, what could be going on. Uh, they, if we all remember uh, in Japan, after, sometime after 9-11, there was a sarin gas attack. People died. Uh, if I had gone into that subway system and to go get my pictures and not known that there was poison gas, I'd be dead too. Uh, I always think about what I'm getting into when I go to a job like that, uh, the breaking news, when there's shots fired. I want to know. Uh, I, and I think uh, other photographers want to know. 
and we want to know when things are going on because if, if without that immediacy, you lose something in the news. You, you get there three hours after, it's a different story. You, you lose the whole importance of it. Then I got a guy laying on the street shot. You know what? I want the public to know that. I, I don't want them to just look at some crime scene tape and say, oh, eh, just just some crime scene tape. I want them to know that a person was injured, a person was shot. Uh, I, I want them to feel it because that's the only way that they're going to understand that, that gun violence is real. It's real. And, and my pictures don't lie. What will happen if they encrypt? It's going to be awful. One of the things I've heard so far is that uh, members of the media will be able to apply for a permit. Uh, of course, I will apply, even though I'm not in the business anymore. I will definitely apply because I'm still going to be doing things in New York City. Uh, other media will also apply. Um, the radios, I'm understanding that they, that they can cost up to $5,000 a piece. So it's going to be a rich man's game. The young guys who are in this business are going to get hurt. They're going to get hurt badly. The big publications, the daily news and things like that, they're going to have to buy radios. And and, and it's not just one. You can't monitor one radio. Uh, it, you're just going to miss everything. Uh, I would imagine that BNN will get a permit, uh, and then those jobs will be put over, but you're not going to hear it live. Uh, there's delay between the time that they transmit and the time that you know the job is going on. Uh, citizens the same way. You're not going to know whether or not it's a good job or not, or whether you should be even going there. Uh, is it a waste of my time or not? How important is it for, like, young reporters, you know, access to the police radio? So it is a First Amendment issue in a lot of people's opinions that they get access. However, like you said, in some counties, even in New York State, the police departments have encrypted radios. And um, you were a real voice about really pushing back against that when the NYPD was considering it last year and still are as they're considering it now. Do you think it's definitely going to happen or do you think there's a still time to push back against it? I, I think that there's still time to push back against it. I think the city council needs to understand that all the work that they've done to, to make the police department transparent will go out the window. Uh, right now, the police department plays favorites. The people who they don't like, they won't give an interview to. Uh, I had been trying to get an interview with the chief of transit for the longest time. They didn't give it to me. They just wouldn't. They, they were passive-aggressive with me. I even asked for an interview with the with commissioner. I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. Uh, but, you know, they'll go on their favorites, New York One, uh, Fox Five. They'll, they'll give them the, the interview. But, uh, well, not, not uh, Todd Maisel. He knows a little too much about what goes on in the field. Uh, uh, he, he's, 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 a, he's a crazy person. Uh, we're not going to give him an interview. But guess what? I'm going to do it my way. They wouldn't give me a ride along. Screw you. I'll go out and do it myself without your permission. And I did that just recently with the 4-4 precinct. I went out there and I showed what the cops are doing, what they're facing every day, and I didn't need their permission. You know what? Better. 
I don't want to kiss their butts. <laughs> you were shooting photographs for a long time. At AM New York, you've been involved in, in really as a multimedia journalist, as an editor, and like all aspects of uh, producing and assembling the news. Like, how does the one experience compare to the other? How, how do you approach things differently in those roles, all of that? I've always uh, felt that my role as a photographer for Daily News, I was a staff photographer. Um, they didn't want me to write. They simply didn't. Uh, they said, take the pictures, do the video, but uh, we'll read the writing to other people. But that should have been a two-way street, right? Why, why are the reporters, wait, they're taking pictures, and their pictures stink, okay? So why can't I write a good story and take great pictures? Well, I, I proved to them. Doing AM New York, in fact, it, it is such a, a, a godsend to me that I was able to have that opportunity to say, hey, this is what I can do. And you know what? I scooped you again and again and again. And, and I love that. I really do. But I, I don't do it to hurt them. Uh, Daily News, uh, again, they treated me well in the end. I, I don't have anything bad to say about them. And I have a lot of friends there. Well, my colleagues and will always be my friends. It has changed the way I approach things. There's no doubt about it. I spend more time at a job. I'll interview people. I'll do video. I, I uh, sometimes take notes. Um, it, it, it took a lot of time for, for some of these government officials to get used to me sitting at a press conference and, and actually asking them questions. Uh, Bill de Blasio especially, uh, I love coming in on his press conferences and surprising him. And he remembers me because we went to school together at, uh, at NYU. Uh, it's very funny. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah so. And this last, this last year was full of press conferences. I remember, you know, as COVID started to come up on us and those press conferences became a daily thing for everybody. Um, and, th- and this is turning out to be, you know, your last year as a New York multimedia reporter. I mean, 2020 is quite a year to go out on. How was that for you? I know that you you experienced COVID as well. Yeah, I, I had COVID. Uh, I um, was uh, at a, a synagogue covering a Purim uh, festival uh, in a synagogue. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people at that synagogue died uh, from COVID. I got sick. A lot of people got sick. Uh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't so bad for me. Uh, it was easy. In fact, I, I was sick for one day. I was tossing and turning, hot and cold, hot and cold. Uh, the next day I got up. I was in Massachusetts when I got, when I started feeling sick. So I didn't get up until after, after 12 o'clock. And, and I went out, picked up my axe, popped open a Corona beer, and I said, all right, get to work. And I chopped some wood and I drank a beer and I felt better and, and the next day, I was still getting hot and cold flashes. Uh, my nose was running a little bit. And then it just kind of wasn't there anymore. Uh, but I went and got tested, and I had it. I quarantined for 14 days. Every single day of that quarantine, I worked. Every day. I, I didn't take a single day off. I worked, I worked a good month and straight, no days off. Uh, I just kept working, and I was on that press conference every single day with the mayor, every day. I I just, I, I just turned up the heat. 
that was it. I, I decided, in fact, this whole year that I was going to turn up the heat, that I was going to work every single day if I can, uh, take a few days off. Uh, no, I wasn't getting paid for it, but for working all those extra hours. No, the, the schneps didn't pay me very well. But all right, I, I did it because I love it. I did it because I wanted to. So last question here. You love it. You've been doing it. This is, you know, what you spent your life on. Why, 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 uh, why call it a day now? And I know you're working on a book. Tell us about that and, and what else you're, you're looking to be doing. And thank you again for joining us and yeah. taking the time. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the book, uh, I've been, I've been actually writing the book for a good 10 years now. Um, I've been on and off whenever I have, uh, like a block of time, I might sit down and, and, and recall some of the, uh, things that, that made this so exciting to me. I, it, I, I've always told people that, that going to a job or going to a fire uh, is like is almost as good as an orgasm. I mean, go, going to a shooting is like, is like a heroin fix for me. Uh, it, it's just the, the adrenaline rush is amazing. Uh, you, you, you can't even imagine how that is sometimes uh, when you do it so often. Uh, why did I stop now? Uh, stopping now was uh, because my wife, first of all, moved to uh, Massachusetts, got the hell out of here when uh, COVID hit because she didn't want to get it from me. And uh, she, so she headed into Massachusetts. She's living here now. Uh, so uh, if I wanted to stay with her, I really needed to move. But uh, it was time. It was time. I, I, I'm out there keeping up, trying to keep up with, the, with these 20-somethings and and do I have the same energy? Yeah, but I don't want to be forced out. Uh, eventually, my health might fail. Eventually, uh, uh, I'm not going to be strong enough. I'm not going to be uh, fast enough. Um, and, and I truthfully don't, just don't want to be – I want to go out on my own terms. And, and the book became even more important to me. So the, the title of the book right now is Confessions of a Psycho News Guy. And that's where it's headed. I want people to understand that, uh, that, that what I did was not usual. That what I did uh, with all the bumps and bruises, yeah, I, I am, I, I am a crazy driver, or at least I was. Um, I do a lot of things that, uh, that, that a lot of people don't do. Uh, why do I get to these jobs before everybody? Uh, I, it changed over the last two years. Um, it became less about speeding to a job and more about a chess game, about understanding where... I remember yeah. we were in a car together and you backed down a whole street to get to a, a two-alarm fire. It was amazing. Right. What about the new people? Do you want to give a shout-out to any of the new people you noticed before we wrap it up? Oh, yes, yeah, please. yeah. And uh, any advice for them, just as a closing note, like... That w- would be great. You know, people are just starting starting doing this from your experience. You know, uh, I've been mentoring a lot of kids. And I call them kids. Uh, you know, they're, they're 25, 30 years old. Uh, they're kids to me. Uh, and uh, I, um, Lloyd Mitchell, for example, uh, he is my favorite. He, he's a great guy. I, and, and I've always tried to bring along, especially the minority kids, and he's one of those. He, he, he's a, a black man from uh, from East New York, and I love the guy. And he, he's he's 
one of the best out there right now. Uh, John Farina is a good man. Uh, uh, he's uh, from Brooklyn. He's really trying to break into this thing. Uh, the guy who took over my place, he's 29 years old, uh, Dean Moses. Uh, he, he's a good kid, good in energy, uh, smart. He can he can do a lot of different things. Um, they're, they're on their way. Um, I, I, I try to pass along as much of my knowledge as I can, and I continue to do so. I'm going to teach at some point. Uh, i got to finish this book first. I'm starting to pitch to schools, and hopefully I'll get a job at one of them, and uh, I'll, I'll pass along more knowledge. Uh, I've been very active with, uh, with a lot of the national college uh, groups and uh, trying to, to tell people what I've experienced and, and what the business has come to. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of good things that have happened, a lot of bad things. There's a lot of commoditization of the business. And that's not good because it's, it's publishers who just want content. Feed the beast. Feed the beast. They don't care what the content is. They don't care if it's a rewrite written press release. As long as they feed the beast, um, that's bad. It's really bad. And then they don't feel like they got to pay people. But I'm really pushing these people along. I would love to take a Todd Maisel class in, uh, <laughs> in you know, one of these days. Hey, Todd, for, for people who are listening, if they want to get started, what's a good camera they should pick up that's not, you know, going to break the bank, but if they want to get started? Oh, iPhone 11 Pro. <laughs> ah, not the iPhone 12? Why? Uh, you don't have 5G yet. 5G is not for another year. <laughs> yeah, might as well get the 11 Pro. It's cheaper. <laughs> uh, a camera. Uh, people uh, people like uh, the Sony. Uh, I, I use Nikon. Uh, reason I use Nikon is it, it's, a, it's a personal thing. Uh, I, I've always had Nikon, and I, I, I need to have a camera I can knock a nail into a wall with. I mean, uh, it, it's got to take the beating. Uh, I'm not and that's so not sure. Leica? I've seen a lot of photographers with no, Leicas these days. Definitely no. No, it, it takes a very nice quality picture. But uh, what for? Why Why you got to spend that kind of money on a camera? I, there, there are plenty of good cameras out there. Sony is making a great camera. The, 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 the S7 is a great camera. S9 is top of the line, uh, $4,000. You don't have to go and spend five and $10,000 for a Leica. Do you really? I mean, <clears throat> I, I know nothing know. about cameras. I'm curious. I I, I use uh, uh, I I use the bigger cameras. Um, I never went for the uh, the single end uh, the uh, the mirrorless. Um, Nikon came out with a, a mirrorless camera. I didn't want to be the guinea pig. Um, I wanted my camera to be strong, so I went out and bought an A50. Uh, the camera is is a brick, but you know what? That brick can hit the ground and get up and still go. The way I work, the way I work has to be tough. It's, my car has to be tough. My computer has to be tough. They all have to be rugged and tough because I'm tough on things. It just is. Dad, that's a Next week we'll be interviewing your yeah. wife. <laughs> <laughs> She'll tell you all about her animals. <laughs> Thanks, Todd. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. Yeah, great. Always a pleasure. It's nice seeing you again. F-A-Q. F-A-Q. 
FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guest this week, Todd Mizell, longtime New York City journalist and photographer. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be good, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week. Do we need a joke? Chrissy, you know a good joke? Alex, you know a good joke? I don't know. I don't any, know. Please. I don't know jokes. jokes. I, I know I, some jokes, but they're uh, No, your jokes, terrible. I know your jokes, Alex. Um, okay, Adam, I got Ooh, a joke. I got one clean. Oh, I got, but I, I do got, have yeah. the encyclopedia. I have encyclopedia of Jewish humor over here. My joke is from 1988, so it doesn't really work. A priest and a rabbit walk into a bar. The rabbit says, I think I'm a typo. Sold. The rabbit says what? I think I'm a typo. Done. Because he's supposed to be a rabbi. A priest, a minister, and a rabbit walk into a bar. Oh. The rabbit says, I missed the. I I think I'm a typo. I only know bad jokes. Yes, that is a solid bad joke, but I'm into it. Okay, so mine from 1988, which I should have known I was going to be a political scientist, was why are, wait, what is it? Why is George Bush, why are George Bush and Dan, wait, what is it? Hold on. Why are dogs, this is, now now I've ruined the joke. Why are dogs banned from the White House? Why? Because they'll chase the quails and pee on the bushes. Bam. I don't know if that's a family appropriate joke though. <laughs> oh, I, I told him when I was like ten years old. I thought it was like the greatest joke ever. <laughs> Have you heard about these new corduroy pillows? No, what? They're really making headlines. <laughs> okay, we're done. <laughs> <laughs>